You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. It's James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into another edition of Questions for Corbett. And for those keeping track at home, this is the 14th edition of this series, but the first one in quite a few months, since the beginning of the year, actually. We haven't had any questions for Corbett's as part of the general hiatus that's been going on in the podcast while I've been working on the Federal Reserve documentary. So, as, well, people will obviously have some questions coming in about that, and we'll get into that in some more detail in just a moment. But before we do so, for those who don't know, of course, this is the Questions for Corbett podcast series, whereby you send in your questions and I answer them. Pretty basic stuff. And how do you send in your questions? Well, of course, you can contact me via the contact form on CorbettReport.com. You can tweet me at CorbettReport. You can throw a video question up on YouTube uh, with a hashtag QFC so I can find it or any other way that you can think of to get this to me, Carrier Pigeon or what have you, but I have a new method for you to get in a question for Questions for Corbett now. On the contact form of CorbettReport.com, you'll not only find the regular email contact, but you'll also find a new SpeakPipe uh, widget, which allows you to actually record audio from your computer. Uh, It just activates your microphone, and then you speak into it, uh, it records the message, and it basically saves it for me to activate as a voice message later on. So you can now leave voice messages for the Corbett Report on the contact form. And of course, that will be a valuable way, I hope, for people to leave audio questions for Corbett. Once again, lots of different ways to get your questions in, so please do so and I'll do my best to answer them. But having said that, it has been several months since our last edition, so there were hundreds of questions piled up and obviously we're not going to get to all of them today. It will only be a smattering of a sample of them, not even a representative sample. So if uh, you had a question in the past that you think I didn't answer and should be answered, please send it in again. It'll be added into the mix again and go through the same process, trying to whittle it down to just uh, the lucky dozen or so that we're able to answer in this podcast. Before we get into the podcast, I should mention one more thing. Of course, there is a new RSS feed on the newly redesigned CorbettReport.com specifically for this podcast, so you can subscribe to the Questions for Corbett podcast feed. It's also up on iTunes in the iTunes store, so... Apple has uh, renounced its uh, blood blood libel against the Corbett Report or whatever was going on there. I don't know. I don't question it anymore. It's up on the iTunes store now. So once again, it's never been easier to subscribe to the RSS feed. Um, quite easy to do, and I hope you do so um, and take advantage of that. And also, please rate and review this on the iTunes store because that helps to give the podcast visibility. All right, having said all of that, and once again reminding you that all of the notes for what we talk about today will be in the show notes for this episode at CorbettReport.com, and if you're watching on YouTube, the link will be in the video description below. But having said all of that, let's get into today's questions, and well, this is uh, basically a question that I've had from everybody ever. (laughs) Asks, when is your Federal Reserve documentary coming out? Did I miss it? I have had this question repeatedly over the past several months, as you can imagine, and now I'm getting it on literally a daily basis. There isn't a day goes by that I don't get this question from someone. So just to put it out on the record, what's happening and what's been happening behind the scenes, I have been working on the Federal Reserve documentary on and off, but in recent months, it has started to slip off of my work priority radar as I get into the the flow of all of the weekly series and everything that I'm producing. So as a way of putting an end to this Federal Reserve documentary uh, slow water torture that I've been putting everyone under, including myself, for the last several months. Here's what's happening. 
the podcast is resuming. It will once again be coming out on a weekly basis. And instead of Fridays as before, it will be Mondays. So that means for those of you who understand, who know all about the Corporate Report schedule, the third Monday of every month is Film Literature and the New World Order, where we talk about a book or a movie. And that will continue. So that will be the podcast episode for Monday. It won't be a regular podcast of the third Monday of the month. It will be Film Literature and the New World Order. And then the other months, uh, the other weeks of the month, it will be either a regular podcast episode or a questions for Corbett. So that will be the way that it continues. So there will be a couple of podcasts a month, the questions for Corbett and a film literature in the New World Order. So uh, so stay tuned for that starting every Monday, starting this Monday. And the next one will be next Monday. And the next Monday is going to be the Federal Reserve documentary is going to be released next Monday. And then the podcast will resume on a weekly basis thereafter. So that's the answer. And trust me, you will not miss it when the Federal Reserve documentary drops because it will be all over CorbettReport.com and I'll have lots of follow-up and, and other things going on about it. So trust me, you will not miss it when it's released. All right, uh, and here's a question from everyone else ever who asks, uh, I was trying to listen to episode X or interview Y or video Z and it cut off halfway through what's going on. Uh, I've had this feedback an awful lot over the past several weeks and long story short, I upgraded the server uh, about six weeks ago or so, and it was from that point that we keep getting this feedback over and over on a, pretty much a daily basis now. Someone is having trouble downloading part of a file and it just cuts off or, or what have you. And then I go to look at it on my side and I'm able to stream the whole thing or download the whole thing. So what's going on? I don't know what's going on, and I have been in touch with my hosting provider, EuroVPS.com, which do has donated the server uh, for the Corbett Report, generously so, but whatever they did with the upgraded server is not working. We're checking the settings behind the scenes. It's still clearly not working, so we're still going to have to fiddle with it. If you have this problem, if the download suddenly cuts off halfway through, if you want to let me know about it, please let me know with as much detail as you possibly can how you were trying to access it. Were you on the website? Were you playing it through the streaming player? Did you download the file from that streaming player to your hard drive? Uh, do you download it through an RSS uh, feed like iTunes or another podcatcher? Um, what date and time were you accessing the file? Which file specifically were you trying to access and how much of it did you get? As much detail as you can possibly provide and that will help us, I hope, to track down this issue and hopefully get it resolved. So you have my sympathies, and I'm putting this up front, so in case this file gets uh, cut off abruptly, you'll know what's going on. All right, and now a question from every Corbett Report member ever. Uh, how do I log into the website? Yes, um, once again, for people who don't know, the newly redesigned CorbettReport.com has a login function. Uh, enter your username and password, and you can log in and start leaving comments on Corbett Report uh, posts. And I've had this from several subscribers over the past few weeks. Uh, where's the login? How do I log in? How do I do this? Um, well, first of all, you have to be a Corbett Report member, i.e. you have to be signed up for an, either a monthly or a, an annual subscription. Um, again, as little as $1 a month, 100 Japanese yen a month, uh, that's 12 bucks a year, will get you a subscription to the website, and then you can become a Corbett Report member. You not only get the Corbett Report newsletter that comes out on a weekly basis with my international forecaster and other materials, but also you'll get access to the uh, website. You'll get a username and password. So that's the first step. The second step, I have to actually send the username and password out to all of the members. I haven't yet done so. I basically, behind the scenes, I have my subscriber list that I've been keeping in different fashions and different files, and it's become very 
monst uh, monstrosity to try to put this all together. I'm trying to consolidate all this so I can put it in the back end uh, as user data that then can send out the username and password. It's a monumental headache. So suffice it to say, it will be sometime over the next week or two I'm going to be getting this done. My first priority is get the Federal Reserve documentary out of the way. My second priority is get every uh, subscriber their, their username and password. So not this coming Saturday, but the following Saturday. By that point, I plan to have all of the username and passwords emailed out to all of the Corporate Report members. If you are a member, you are subscribed, and you do not receive your username and password in the next two weeks, then please do get in touch with me and we will sort it out. Um, until then, I'm really trying to do my best, so, so just hold off until then and we'll get that sorted out as soon as possible. All right, that's the kind of housekeeping, but let's get into what we're really here to talk about today, the corporate report type issues. So we're going to start with a very interesting video from John Loth asking a question for Corbett. Hello, Mr. Corbett. My name is John Loth. I trust this finds you as it leaves me in good health. I'd like to ask you a question on the subject of the seemingly eternal pattern of events that are currently unfolding. What I'm alluding to here is the striking parallels between the build-up and beginning of the First World War and what's taking place today. Is it just me or does it seem as if the financial powers that we now know were responsible for the first two world wars are bringing about the conditions for a third major conflict? If so, why do you think it has continued to work so well? And also, where did all the wobblies go? Thank you for taking the time to listen to this, and I hope that you get a chance to respond. Have a nice day. All right, thank you for that video, John. That was uh, the best produced video question that we've received so far, so I hope that will spur others to, uh, to do likewise. That was... That was quite the video, but uh, let's get to the meat and potatoes of what you're asking. It's I appreciate the question. I've talked about this a few times in some of the interviews I've done recently where I talked about the, the parallels that I see between our situation today and the, the situation that led to World War I, specifically looking in that summer of 1914 context where, as we've been told all our lives and as we learned in school and as we obediently regurgitated on the tests that were asked of us, uh, what was the, the precipitating event for World War I? It was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, and that kicked into motion all these alliances, and suddenly we had Europe basically torn and apart with war, and of course that... Uh, spread around the globe and ultimately to the U.S. a few years later. So uh, that's the story of World War One and how it kicked off as we've come to know it. And within that kind of limited view, that is technically correct. I think we can paint that kind of picture. I think there's a broader picture of the context that led to that that's more important and that I will explore in more depth later on this year in a, in a project that I'm working on. But Within that limited view, that is, I suppose, more or less right. It was all of these alliances that, that kind of kicked things into motion and made it automatic, uh, automatic responses. So that, for example, um, uh, this was not a surprise to anyone. I don't think anyone was uh, in Europe was really caught off guard by the fact that there was a great war between the great powers of Europe. I think everyone was expecting it. It's just what event will set it off might have been the wild card in that scenario. But, uh, but I mean, we saw that, for example, Germany had the plans, the invasion plans for France with the timetables for the trains and everything all worked out already in advance. Why was that? Because they knew there was going to be a, a big great war between the great powers, so they were already ready for it. So I think 
again, when we apply that to the current situation, yes, absolutely. I think we see that developing in a lot of different fronts around different areas of the globe. Look at Eastern Europe, look what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, I, I think that what is happening there is very disturbing insofar as it's right on the doorstep of Russia, right in that buffer between NATO and Russia. And Ukraine, the Kula Ukraine government now tipping towards NATO and starting with uh, NATO uh, joint military exercises and, and those types of operations, which is quite disturbing because then, of course, it brings up the, the idea, well, what if Ukraine does become NATO? And then anything that Russia does on that doorstep will be seen as potential threat against NATO, invoke the mutual defense clause, Article 5, that hasn't been used since the invasion of Afghanistan, and suddenly we have uh, the, the makings of a, of a real hot war. Um, and Unfortunately, it's not just there in Eastern Europe. Look at the Middle East. Look at look at Syria. Look at the way that Turkey came out. Uh, um, th- those those leaked recordings came out recently to confirm that the Turkish officials were talking about let's stage an attack on Turkish targets in Turkey, in Syria, wherever. Just say it's an attack on us. We'll blame it on the Syrians for it, and we'll have an excuse for war. That's disturbing because again, Turkey is part of NATO. So if there's an attack on Turkey, they can try to invoke the mutual defense clause and potentially give NATO the big golden ticket to, to go into Syria like they've wanted to. Um, again, very worrying. Or uh, look at the Asia-Pacific, what we talk about with Brock West every single month, Asia-Pacific perspective. Uh, just a one big powder keg looking for a spark. And uh, whether that's Vietnam and China with the oil rig situation, whether that's the Philippines with their new agreements to allow uh, more military cooperation with the U.S. and their new forward naval base, whether that's Australia committing to even more firmly to uh, to go along with uh, U.S. in resisting Chinese destabilization, whether it's Japan uh, playing cat and mouse with the Chinese in the East China Sea and, uh, and fighter jets uh, uh, strafing each other and all of this craziness that's going on. Just very worrying in terms of all those different situations and any one of them could set off a, a broader conflict. And then there's all the wildcard scenarios. There's the Arctic and the scramble for resources there and the militarization of the Arctic, which my home and native land of Canada is certainly... Uh, suspect in and culprit uh, party to, uh, or there's Africa and the resource wars that are going on there through various proxies. Well, that could become potentially a hot war at some point. All these different wild cards, who knows, again, what the specific spark will be. But I think we can see that there is, broadly speaking, this this bipolar world shaping up with the NATO countries on one side and the brick resistance countries on the other. It's not exactly sure which, uh, what countries are going to line up on what side, but at any rate, we see the broad outline of what the next major conflict would be. And yes, I see the, the, the parallels quite, uh, quite deeply there. Um, as for the Wobblies, uh, for people who don't know, this is the Industrial Workers of the World, um, which actually is an organization which still exists and has its, uh, its headquarters in uh, in Chicago, um, and it was uh, well a, a labor agitating uh, union body, whatever of striking workers um, in the early part of the 20th century gained uh, uh, quite a bit of traction and notoriety, uh, and they did come out in 1916 with a with a resolution saying that the U.S. should not get involved in World War One. So. I disagree with some of their anti-capitalist leanings, but hey, I agree with the anti-war leanings, so maybe there's a common cause there. So where is the uh, IWW equivalent in this day and age? I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think you could 
try to say that something like Occupy or, or those types of things are, are leaning in that direction, but no, there is no organized group like an IWW throwing its weight around on the table right now. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that, but again, I think, uh, well, as long as they get us... Um, in the wrong type of opposition, it's easy to direct us away. A lot more to be said about that, but let's leave that there um, as we have a lot of other questions to get to. Let's move on to a question from Evan, who writes, what's a better email system to use than Google? Uh, thank you for the question, Evan. That's a very good question, and one that I attempted to answer with a interview that I did with Catherine Albrecht of Startpage.com, and of course the author of Spy Chips. Many people will know her for her work on RFIDs. I interviewed her last year for the Corbett Report, and we talked about not only Startpage, but Startmail.com, which is a, uh, a privacy-protecting uh, email service. And again, I mean, anything on the internet is only as good as you can, you know, as the backbone of the internet itself, which as we know, unfortunately, is being tapped into. So, you know, what are you going to really ultimately protect if that's your ultimate goal? But certainly it's more secure than something like Google. And Startpage does not actively cooperate with uh, the NSA, and they take lots of precautions against outside interference. So I, I do think it is a good service. I don't use it myself, so I'm going to put that caveat out there. I do know a lot of listeners who have signed up for it and are using it, and I've heard some good feedback about it. Um, so that's something I would recommend. Personally, I have my own mail server on my server, so I, I don't worry about those types of services. All right, next we have Bob, who asks a very good question. How can you have a podcast, an article entitled Intellectual Property Doesn't Exist?, while asserting your copyright on every page of your site. <laughs> and this is referring to the old incarnation of CorbettReport.com. Uh, there used to be a little footer that said something like copyright 2007 to the present Corbett Report, something along those lines. That was just some boilerplate text that was part of the WordPress design that I was using that had been there since the, the website started or since that particular theme was uh, started in 2010, I think, the redesign, um, that had just been sitting there. I didn't even notice it until Bob pointed it out, and I thought, yeah, you know what? That is that is wrong. So thank you very much for pointing that out, Bob. That was my oversight completely. And so now when you go to Corporate Report and you look at the bottom, it has the correct boilerplate text at the, uh, the bottom of the page indicating that this is not a copyrighted website. It is a Creative Commons website, Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License to be precise. And if you actually click on that link, you can go to the Creative Commons website, creativecommons.org, to find out more about that license, under which all of my work that's published there at CorbettReport.com is provided. You are free to share and adapt, i.e. Re remix, transform, build upon, copy, redistribute this material in any format or medium that you like, so long as you provide attribution, i.e., say where the work came from, and non-commercial. Do not uh, try to sell my work as your own, and we'll be fine. So that's that's the, the, the underlying um, way in which this open source material is provided free and open to the public. So thank you again, Bob, for pointing that out, and I'm glad that you gave me the opportunity to notice that and to correct that on my website. All right, let's go next to Chris, who writes, Hey, I was thinking of a particular question asked to you by 42 Minutes, a podcast that I was on earlier um, earlier this year, I believe, late last year. They asked what media you consume, and you said that you watch YouTube podcasts and the like. I was wondering if maybe you could include some of those in your recommended viewing or listening on in your subscriber letter, or maybe do an aggregate of types of media that you listen to. 
Okay, thank you for that, Chris. Uh, for people who don't know, yes, in my subscriber member newsletter that comes out every week, I do recommended uh, reading, recommended listening, recommended videos every week that I put in there so that uh, I can recommend some good material for people. Um, and so I could put this in there, but I'll do it here. Why not? Uh, let's just do podcasts today. If people are really interested in what YouTube channels are subscribed to, I can share that as well. But let's just uh, look at the podcast. These are the podcasts I'm subscribed to currently. And my caveat is if you're a podcaster and you don't and you think you should be in here and you're not, don't worry about it. I subscribe and unsubscribe quite often. So I'm always changing it up and trying to just find a different mix for my podcast. And I never have time to listen to them all anyway. So this is aspirational rather than, uh, uh, than, than something that I can actually accomplish. But these are the podcasts I'm subscribed to. Uh, first of all, I'm subscribed to all the Corbett Report podcast feeds, not because I'm vain and like to listen to myself, but because I like to check that the feeds are functioning correctly, which I actually don't always get right anyway, but I try my best. I'm uh, subscribed to, in alphabetical order, the Cracked podcast, uh, cracked.com, which is kind of strange. It's a humor uh, podcast, occasionally insightful. Occasionally they have topics that are actually interesting and they actually get into. Um, there was one recently about the different regions of the United States and how they're almost like different countries within the United States and how that developed historically. It was a really fascinating podcast episode. Sometimes they have great things like that. Sometimes they have kind of useless mind fluff. Sometimes they're atrociously bad when it comes to anything about conspiracy because they love to put down crazy conspiracy theorists. So it's hidden mix. I'm not sure I'd recommend it. Uh, I'm subscribed to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He's a bit mainliney, but he also, I mean, he, he does a very thorough job um, on, on what he does. And it is a lot of mainline history, but still it is good to, to know and to hear. Uh, and some very in-depth, basically audio books is what he produces. These big three-hour podcasts that link up in a series that ends up being 12 hours long or something. So it's uh, it's quite a lot of listening, but it's it's worth it. I really do get a lot out of that. I think it's a good, uh, well-produced podcast. I'm, I'm subscribed to Fareed Zakaria's GPS, of course. I've talked about this before in listening to The Enemy. Fareed Zakaria, absolutely CFR insider all the way, and every single week there is some Richard Haas or... Uh, or uh, or Henry Kissinger, or someone from that uh, from that globalist clique who's uh, out there spewing the latest propaganda. So I, I subscribe so I can hear the propaganda and know where it's coming from. Uh, I'm subscribed to uh, Hipsters United, <laughs> which is a Smashing Pumpkins podcast that hasn't um, been around for over a year now. They haven't produced an episode, so don't even worry about that. I'm subscribed to How Did This Get Made, uh, a, a silly entertainment podcast that um, basically rips apart terrible movies, cheesy movies, like really bad, not B, B movies, but like D movies. And uh, it's funny, I, I don't even, I haven't even watched most of the movies they review, but it is genuinely hilarious the way they tear them apart. So I like that. That's just mindless entertainment for me. I'm, uh, I just recently subscribed to the In Our Time Archive uh, of Philosophy uh, episodes. It's a BBC radio series, which again is very mainstreamy and has on, you know, Oxford professors and the like, but they do um, talk about some interesting philosophical things. Um, I, I think they haven't produced a new episode in three years or something. I think it's discontinued. But I just went and subscribed and downloaded a bunch of different um, uh, podcasts on Taoism and Edmund Burke and uh, Thoreau and, and anarchism and Marx and all of these different subjects. So it's, it's interesting for me to listen to. Um, again, I take it with a grain of salt how mainstreamy it is. I'm subscribed to the Jack Blood Show, of course. I'm subscribed to uh, Life Report, uh, Pro-Life Talk, Real World Answers. 
I'm subscribed to, uh, right now I'm subscribed to a podcast feed that's actually an audiobook. It's Lloyd DeMouse's The Origins of War in Child Abuse, um, which is uh, an audiobook. It's a book that uh, Stefan Molyneux read into the, the microphone and provided as a free audiobook download and there's a podcast feed for that, so I downloaded that. Very interesting book. I'm not sure I agree 100% with what it says, but it's, it is very important, I think, to take a look at that. I'm subscribed to Media Monarchy podcast, of course, and he had a, recently a really interesting conversation talking about celebrity storylines with a researcher in the UK. Um, subscribe to The Mind Renewed, a very, very good podcast. Uh, Julian Charles does great interviews, really in-depth. Um, so uh, he has one up right now about Dr. Tim Ball talking about peer review that I haven't listened to yet, but I'm looking forward to. Uh, another mindless entertainment podcast. I'll admit it. I'm subscribed to the Opie and Anthony Show podcast. What can you say about that? Uh, certainly anything to do with conspiracy, I try not to listen to because they're atrocious on it. But uh, but just for mindless humor, it can be entertaining enough. Uh, I'm subscribed to the Peace Revolution podcast, of course. I'm subscribed to Porkins Policy Radio. Uh, Porkins Policy Review, Radio, whatever it's called, <laughs> with uh, Pierce Redmond. Once again, for people who haven't checked that out, please do so. Very good podcast. He does some great, really in-depth reports uh, there, so I hope you will ch check it out and subscribe to him. Uh, of course, he was my recent guest on the film literature in the New World Order, where we talked about Charlie Wilson's war. I'm subscribed to Revelations Radio News. I'm uh, subscribed to uh, the Sovereign Man podcast. That's a relatively new podcast, so I've just subscribed to it recently, but he does some good breakdowns of finance and economics. Uh, I'm subscribed to Traces of Reality, Guillermo Jimenez's podcast. Uh, I'm subscribed to the Vice podcast again, a bit mainliney, and ooh, oh, we're so cutting edge, and um, you know, but we est support establishment narratives whenever possible. But some of their uh, some of their podcasts are, are interesting, and there's some in-depth conversations there. And finally, I'm subscribed to the World Next Week, not the New World Next Week, the World Next Week. Yes, for those of you who don't know, the New World Next Week is a ripoff of. The CFR's World Next Week. They have a World Next Week podcast, so James and I made The New World Next Week, and we actually, if you look at the logo, the podcast logo of World Next Week and New World Next Week, it's the same logo and everything. So we were uh, trying to steal some of their Google foo and direct some of the CFR searchers to towards us. I'm not sure that worked, but that was our intention anyway. So again, listening to the enemy, listening to the propaganda coming out from the CFR is not always useful, but sometimes useful. All right, so that's... Um, my podcasts. And again, if you want to ask about my YouTube subscriptions, maybe we could do that next time. All right, uh, let's move along to the next question. And this one is another video question, this one from Angus. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on on this this issue, um, on, the, on, on these two issues about the, the, the climate change, uh, what happened with those uh, with the myths that you debunked, if do you do you maintain your position uh, even after reading like some quite detailed um, analysis of the, those questions on this uh, skepticalscience.com? Um, and then to like, uh, the more general question of should your readers be able to recommend other? Um, other science or also like other research uh, that might even contradict your own position. Sincerely hoping this uh, this video gets your attention. Um, all the best from Sweden. Okay, see you. Okay, thank you for that, Angus. And sorry I didn't set that up very well, um, but Angus left a five-plus-minute video, so I 
couldn't play at all, but that's kind of the gist of where the questions end up. To give some context to that, he was watching my 10 climate myths debunked in one minute video, and he started to look into some of the claims in that, and he looked at skepticalscience.com, which had some counter-arguments to the arguments that uh, I presented there, and he was convinced by the counter-arguments at skepticalscience.com, so he was basically asking, well, what's your response to this? There seems to be a, a big, very, very detailed debate that goes on at Skeptical Science that comes to the opposite opinion of you. And then the other part of that is, well, what about the Corbett Report? Why is there not that space for debate and, uh, and discussion like what you see at Skeptical Science? Um, so, so that's a two, two part question. I, and again, I couldn't play the whole video, but, um, but uh, the, with regards to the climate myths debunked, uh, video for people who didn't catch it, it was a one minute video, 10 climate myths debunked in one minute. Um, so it's an average of six seconds per climate myth, obviously not going to be the most in-depth, uh, reporting that I can do on the subject. It was one of those things you trade off, it catches attention, it gets spread very widely, it doesn't convey a lot of content, so you hope people will click back to the source documents and all of that. Um, but again, you can't convey much information there. So... Again, I wrestle back and forth whether it's worth doing those types of videos at all or not. I could do an entire episode on, for example, the, the claim that 97% of uh, climate scientists agree that global warming is real and it's man-made. Um, uh, there's so many points and counterpoints to be made there, and the one that I chose to go with in the video it relates to the the sort of original 97% claim, which was based on a survey, which out of 15,000 participants in the survey, they boiled it down to whatever, 89 or 93 or whatever uh, climate scientists out of that 15,000 sample. And from that 93 people, they came up with their 97% number, um, which, I mean, there's so many problems with that. It's been talked about at length online. I'll put in a couple of links in the show notes so you can go and read some more about that. But then they, after that was roundly debunked, they came out with another 97% claim that was completely differently derived, but arrived at the exact same number, 97%. And this time they took uh, however many papers, I don't remember, 10,000 or something, and they, they, they tried to categorize them and say this paper supports the AGW uh, hypothesis, this paper goes against the AGW hypothesis, or this paper has nothing to say about the AGW hypothesis. And they tried to rank it out, and they found, magically enough, 97% of pap uh, published scientific papers support the idea of anthropogenic global warming. Um, again, tons of problems with that study and the way it was conducted and the types of things that we know, uh, the information that they'll release about that story and the information they're actually hiding about the way that story, uh, that study was committed. Again, tons of problems with that study and different people have come to vastly different results um, looking at those, those, those papers. So again, I'll put links in the show notes so people can explore that. Um, I, I guess what I would say in response overall to the question of, of these issues, I mean, I do stand by what I was saying in the, in the 10 climate myths debunked video, but there's obviously a lot more to say about it. And there is a huge discussion that takes place and it's extremely in-depth. And that's the frustrating thing because I do look at websites about this on a regular basis and there's so many headlines that come and, and they get put up, plastered all over the mainstream. But then when you read about them on some of the other blogs out there, like uh, uh, Steve McIntyre's blog or Anthony Watts blog or, or uh, Bishop Hill or, or these other places that go into depth and di dissect them, you find that they're totally fluff, totally, completely 180 degrees backwards. But you never see that discussion taking place. When it comes to a site like Skeptical Science in particular, uh, it looks very impressive because it looks like there's debate going on and and uh, they, they answer it in a very scientific way. But 
that site is censored and there has been uh, people who found SKS forum, which was a secret thing that no one was supposed to know about, but people found out about it and some of the things that were going on there and uh, the, the types of plans that, that the moderators were doing to how they can exclude certain people from the conversation and all of this, again, more scandal than you can shake a stick at. I'll throw in some links to that. Um, suffice it to say, it's, it is a very complex issue. There's a lot of points to be made on any one of those issues in something like the 10 Climate Myths Debunked, let alone the dozens of other issues that I, I would like to talk about. So I could do an entire podcast on just the global warming bunk. Um, and I, maybe I should, because I constantly get emails from people. I agree with you on so many things, but why don't you agree with the science? Um, there, there is a lot behind this. It's just, unfortunately, it's, it takes a lot of time to sort through because there's a lot of intricate matters there. Um, uh, regarding the other part of that, why is there no space for, for open discussion and things on CorbettReport.com? I, of course, agree, and I always wanted to foster that sense of community on CorbettReport.com, and that's that t uh, chance for discussion, but it's always a question of how you do that, and if you do it in a, excuse my French, if you do it in a half-assed kind of way, you're going to get uh, messy and and not really happy results where it, it devolves very quickly into uh, just, you know, just silliness. Um, and I think we've all seen those types of forums online. So I've never wanted to do it in a half-assed way. I've always wanted to, to do it whole-assed. Um, so so uh, the, my response uh, at this point, I'm, I'm starting with this CorbettReport.com. The, the members uh, can log in and, and, and leave their comments on any post on CorbettReport.com and that is going to be the the main forum for discussion. So I am trying to foster a sense of Corbett Report community. Corbett Report members, I encourage you to come on. And yes, I mean, sure, if you disagree, say you disagree and provide links, whatever. We'll, we'll again, hash that out in the comments and we will foster a discussion on an ongoing basis because I think it is important to get that going. It's just always a question of how much I can participate in that, if, uh, if at all, with all the demands on my time. All right, let's move along. Speaking of demands on time, we're already <laughs> we're already getting deep into this podcast, and we've only touched uh, a few questions. Okay, next one from Hans. Does the American occupation of Afghanistan facilitate the smuggling of heroin from Afghanistan to the U.S.? Will the smuggling of heroin stop or decrease if the American troops are withdrawn from Afghanistan? So why are troops still in Afghanistan? If the Taliban take control over Afghanistan, will that stop the production of poppies and heroin? All right, let's do it quickly, Hans. The answers are yes. Uh, the second answer may be decrease. The third answer, they're there to protect the poppies, as well as mineral deposits and pipeline transits and access to uh, the, the it provides to the region militarily. And the fourth answer, well, it did in the past. Um, so sort those answers out to those questions, and I think we'll get the answer. If you want a more detailed talk about the Afghan and drugs and how that relates, I will point you to an interview that I did with Peter Dale Scott a few years ago now on that very subject that I think was enlightening. So uh, that'll be in the show notes at CorbettReport.com. Next, we'll go to Twitter for our next question. At Steve Dew asks, what is going on here? 42 USC section 18 115. Um, yes, good question. Well, for those of you out there who don't know, who haven't read this yet, uh, this is basically a part of the U.S. Code. Title 42, the Public Health and Welfare, Section 18115, Freedom Not to Participate in Federal Health Insurance Programs. And it reads verbatim, No individual, company, business, nonprofit entity, or health insurance issuer offering group, group or individual health insurance coverage 
shall be required to, to participate in any federal health insurance program created under this act or any amendments made by this act or in any federal health insurance program expanded by this act or any other such or any such amendments and there shall be no penalty or fine imposed upon any such issuer for choosing not to participate in such programs Wow, does that mean that there's absolutely no mandate for Obamacare and that, in fact, there will be no penalties if you don't participate? Uh, well, that was the meme that was going around in January of this year, which is, I think, at the, the time at which I received this tweet. So you'll forgive me again for being several months behind here. But um, so this was going around in the alt media, and this got, there was a video that got several thousand views, and a lot of people were talking about it. Oh, you know, there is no Obamacare mandate. Uh, no, not really. This is a misreading that's gone on in the alt media. Basically, people weren't reading it carefully enough. This is talking not about individual. Um, people um, who are buying insurance. This is talking about issuers. Again, no individual company, business, nonprofit entity, or health insurance insurance issuer offering group or individual health insurance coverage shall be required. Da, da, da. And at the end, and there shall be no penalty or fine imposed upon any such issuer for choosing not to participate in such programs. This is not about you buying insurance. This is about providing insurance. So if you are, as an individual, or more likely as a, as a corporation, are providing issuing insurance to people, you are not required to participate in a federal program to do so. But this has nothing to do with the Obamacare individual mandate. So unfortunately, um, yes, this is not some magic loophole that gets you out of the Obamacare shenanigans. All right, um, next we'll go to PJ for a lighthearted question. In your previous questions for Corbett, you answered a question, since you live in D Japan, do you watch anime? You said you do not. Why not? <laughs> Thank you, PJ. Actually, I had this from a few people who um, seemed incest incensed by that answer. Uh, nothing major to it. Just first of all, I don't really, I don't really get it as a genre. I'm not particularly into it. I'm one of the very, 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 very few people here in Japan who didn't come here as a foreigner because they were interested in anime or video gaming or Japanese women. That was not the reason that I came out here in the first place, and I never got into anime or or video games. Um, but, yes, so why not? I don't know. It's just my preference. Um, that doesn't mean I dislike all anime. In fact, some of it is quite good. Uh, uh, something like Totoro or the the um, the Studio Ghibli. Uh, some really amazing work has been done in that. And, uh, and some very interesting, I mean, nar narrative-defying types of stories. I mean, what is the story of Totoro? It, 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 there is no, I mean, there's no real conflict. There's no, there's no enemy. There's no bad guy. There's no, I mean, it, it's a very bizarre story from that perspective, but it, it is, I mean, it's nice to, to have that type of idea of narrative that doesn't rely on, on conflict sometimes, uh, different ways of looking at the world. And that's one of them. So I, I'm not against it altogether. And I was a fan of Cowboy Bebop back in the days, um, an excellent series with one of the best endings to any television series I think I've ever seen. Um, but again, I'm just not into it on the whole. But having said that, there will be an anime that we are planning to do later in this year on film literature in the New World Order. So stay tuned for that. Okay, next, Adrian writes in with actually a helpful hint about a podcast that I, I did about uh, question uh, the Kubrick question, in which I noted that the theory has been posited that room 237 in The Shining was room 237, not whatever room it was in the book version, 181 or whatever it was, because specifically 237 refers to 237,000 miles from the Earth to the moon, and that's why it's another moon reference encoded in The Shining. And I made the point in that podcast of saying, it's not 237, um, it's 238. Just about any 
well, any place that, that I looked at, it said 238,000. Um, and I couldn't find any other reference, even historical references, to this 237,000. So I was saying at the time, I can't see anything that proves this to room 237 is a moon reference. If anyone out there has anything, please let me know. So Adrian writes in to say, uh, obviously a little behind the curve on this episode, but I did search 237,000 distanced moon on the Google Books site and found many references in old texts. So I'm going to provide a, f- a bunch of them. He provided four or five references, including an old Isaac Asimov text that says 237,000 miles. So I stand corrected on that. And thank you again, Adrian, for sending that in. I do appreciate that uh, that research because that bolsters at least the point. Um, so that's another point in favor of the uh, the idea that The Shining is just encoded um, an, uh, with the moon, moon references everywhere. Very interesting. Okay, next, uh, let's go to another video question, this time from Ian in Malaysia. Hi, James. It's Ian in Malaysia. Two questions for you. First one, how do you go about researching a topic? And the second one, how can you prove to yourself that countries' central banks are privately owned and controlled. Thank you. All right, thank you for the question, Ian. I do appreciate it. Um, The first question is very broad, and I do get it a lot, but I don't know how to answer this, because uh, I guess it depends on the subject, but generally it starts with just searching in a search engine for whatever piece of information it is I'm looking for. And again, it's hard to be specific because it depends on the topic, but I did give an example a couple of years ago talking about... um, talking about vaccines causing uh, uh, viruses, and I looked at a specific example of that. So, again, people can... uh, I'll throw the link in, so that's an example of how I would go about researching a subject. It's just one example, and uh, maybe I should do an entire episode on this, because, again, there's a lot of interest in this, and I get that question a lot. As to the other part of the question, it's an interesting question. How can you prove to yourself that countries' banks are privately owned and controlled? Exceptionally important question and one that we hear a lot, but I think the important point about this question is that I think it's an example of one of those questions where if they can get you to ask the the wrong question or the right question in the wrong way, they can give you the pat response that is going to be very definitive and look make you look very silly in front of other people. You know, oh, oh, why did you ask that? Whereas I think the question that we want to be asking is slightly different. So again, it always comes back to this. Who owns the Federal Reserve? It's, it's privately owned. It's these secret owners who own it. It's the Rothschilds. It's the Rockefellers. It's, you know, this and that. It's not quite that simple. So we can go to the Federal Reserve website, federalreserve.gov, and they have a standard pat answer to this on their FAQ, who owns the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve system fulfills its public mission as an independent entity within government. It is not owned by anyone and is not a private profit-making institution. And insofar as they get to define all those terms and put it in that way, they're technically correct. It's not a profit-making institution per se. They don't make a profit. Well, the profit that they make, they give back to the Treasury. And uh, and yes, there, there, there are shares that are issued through the Federal Reserve banks um, to the shareholders, which are the banks that make up the Federal Reserve System. So the private banks own shares in the Federal Reserve System through the Reserve Banks. And they get 6% dividends on that. So there is some type of profit-making going on for some of the entities involved here. But, you know, it's not exactly the way people mean it when they say owned. And it's it's not for profit. And all of these things that they get to say, look, all of you conspiracy theorists are wrong. So this is something I'm going to be talking about very specifically in my Federal Reserve documentary, how this works and what it really means. I think the real question is not who 
owns the Federal Reserve, it's who controls the Federal Reserve. And when we put it in those terms, it becomes much more apparent what's going on. The FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, which consists of presidents of the reserve banks, which again are drawn from the private private banks, which make up those, those reserve banks. So it's a system that's not, it doesn't operate in the way that I think it would be easy to understand. Oh, you know, Bank X or Person Y owns the Federal Reserve. It's that it's controlled through these mechanisms, which theoretically, yes, the Federal Reserve was put into place by Congress and can be repealed by an act of Congress. Not that it ever will be, or at least not in the current political climate, but they can at least say that, and they, there is some truth to that, and they get to put it in that context. So that that's the, the context that's really important. It's not who owns it, it's who controls it. And... Um, and on that note, again, um, there's there's often things that go around the web talking about there's only, you know, three central banks that aren't privately owned, and these are the three. That's like Iraq and Iran and North Korea, and so they invaded Iraq, or, or whatever it is. These lists go around, and I've seen different ones in different, uh, being propounded in different ways by different people. Uh, again, I don't think it's really about that. Uh, I, I, it's not... It's not about who owns the central banks per se, it's about how they're run and who directs and controls them. And uh, to get a better sense of, of that and the list of the countries that are on the globalist inside, I think we should go to the the bank, the central bank for central banks, identified by Carol Quigley as the apex of the pyramid back in Tragedy and Hope, the bank for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, which very few people even know exists, and the few people that do don't understand what it is or how it works an exceptionally important organization that I am going to be doing more work on in the future because of its importance. But on their website, they have an about section and they list their organization, including the members are who are the central banks or monetary authorities of, and it gives a list of all the central banks that participate in the Bank for International Settlements. And there you go. Those are the list of the bankster insider controlled central banks and it doesn't mean that necessarily that they're owned by outright uh, by various people it means they're controlled and in there of course you'll find canada of course you'll find japan of course you'll find the united states the united kingdom the european central bank italy israel uh, indonesia uh, Canada, Chile, I already said that, China, China, Russia, oh, if, oh no, no, they're, they're against this new world order, no, they're, they're a part of it, uh, Germany, France, Australia, Austria, I mean, uh, that's the real list, so go take a look at that, and uh, again, there will be more to say about that, because the BIS is such an important and such an understudied organization, even in the alt-media. All right. Thank you again for that, Ian. Let's turn to Jack, who writes, I have been surprised by the huge amount of attention Thomas Piketty is receiving for his recent book, Capital in the 21st Century. Admittedly, it is a truly excellent body of work, but wonderful economists such as Michael Hudson have been saying essentially the same thing for many years. Um... So why was the New Yorker, New York Times, and Paul Krugman, The Economist, and even Foreign Affairs so interested in his work? I then noticed one of his solutions to the highlighted inequality issue, a global wealth tax. Does this suddenly raise the same red flags for you as it does for me? Uh, uh, yes, thank you for the question. And the answer is yes, it does raise some red flags. And again, the best propaganda is not 100% flat-out stinking lies. It's not something that you could point at, out and laugh at because it's just so blatantly false. The best propaganda is pointing out a lot of true things and then coming to Er grossly erroneous conclusions based on them, or even subtly erroneous. Again, it can be quite more subtle than, than sometimes we think. So, um, 
there's a lot to say about that and about Thomas Piketty and about capital in the 21st century and the way it's the 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 the, the messiah for for a lot of these uh, insider globalist economists who love its conclusion. And I agree with again, I agree with some of the things he's saying. There are some problems with his methodology that have been pointed out by other writers, but I agree broadly speaking, that um, income inequality is a growing problem, not because I disagree with the idea of a free market operating and people being just unequal, unequal in various positions because of their, their performance or lack thereof or the market the way it goes, but because it is structurally inherent in the way that the uh, the crony capitalist system is is set up, that it will be the insiders, the globalists, the uh, the well-connected few who continue to, to aggrandize themselves at the expense of everyone else. And that's something that I think we should all be concerned about. But putting that in the right perspective and then getting the right conclusion from all of that, not global wealth tax, not more government. Oh, oh yes, government, please save us from these these uh, capitalists that you're in bed with. Uh, that's absolutely ridiculous. So an excellent article that I just read yesterday um, that I will recommend to everyone is up on dollarvigilante.com right now. It is by Mark Jeftovic. Jeftovic? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's called Cronyism in the 21st Century. Excellent analysis. Lots of good material in there. I think really takes Piketty to task and in a smart way with a lot of good references. So I will point that out to you. I will put it in the show notes. Please do go read through it. And I think that that's the real answer to Piketty and... Uh, and, and the reason why he's being pimped so hard right now by the uh, the powers that shouldn't be. All right, um, next on another monetary note, we have Isaac, um, who starts off his email by saying that he, like myself, um, points to the, the Money Masters as one of the formative documentaries that helped him to understand the, uh, the Federal Reserve System and the monetary system better. But he says, I'm emailing you to ask about two documents that Bill Still's thesis, uh, Bill Still, the host of the Money Masters and uh, a researcher in his own right, uh, two documents that Bill Still's thesis somewhat relies on, the Hazard Circular and the Panic Circular. Have you found original source documentation on these documents? In the newest Bill Still documentary, he cites congressional record for both documents. Excellent. Well, yes, very, very important question, because this is something that I've noted myself and that I'm dealing with, obviously, in the creation of my Federal Reserve documentary. Um, there's a lot of things in the Money Masters that are just flat out false, um, including a lot of spurious quotations. That's that's something that hangs up a lot of people when it gets into this area specifically. Uh, there's a lot of quotations out there that are just flat out false. They were not said by the people that we, we think said them. The famous Thomas Jefferson quote about inflation and deflation leaving us homeless on the continent, our forefathers conquered, what have you. Absolutely spurious. Thomas Jefferson did not say or write that. Uh, the, the Den of Vipers quote from Andrew Jackson, almost certainly not uh, not actually said. Uh, a lot of things like that get floated around. There's a lot of them in the Money Masters. So be very, very careful about quotations in particular. If you don't have an actual source for it, you should assume that it has been made up by someone until it is proven otherwise. I think that's the best methodology. That's why uh, federal my Federal Reserve documentary, I'm being exceptionally careful to be as as careful as possible with my sources. I'm not going out on speculative limbs. I'm not taking flights of fancy. I'm trying to put it as basic as I can. 
So uh, again, you'll see that when it comes. But um, but yes, uh, the panic circular, the hazard circular. I will not dis- attempt to describe it right now. I'll just leave it. Um, I'll put some links in the description so you can read about them. If anyone has more information, this is my homework to you. This is not questions for Corbett. This is questions for you. If you can find a source for these that goes beyond that congressional record citation, which is uh, 50, 100 years after the fact, if you can find an actual source document for these, please let me know. Because I'd love to see them myself. Um, I just don't think they're out there. And that's why I'm not including them in my documentary. But hey, there's still time. There's still a few days. So if you can get in actual source documentation on these for me, not not third-hand accounts, not something written decades after the fact, actual source documentation, I will gladly and lovingly put it in the documentary because it would certainly help the case if it was real. All right, finally, um, at the end of every Questions for Corbett, we go through a positive experience that someone has had in consuming alt media because I want to, again, make this not about fear, not about panic, but about actual things that we can implement in our own lives. So finally, we have this email in from Tom who is writing about uh, something that he did as a result of consuming the Corbett Report and other alt media. He, uh, he writes, you recently asked for input regarding what I have done personally to further self-sufficiency and promote community to disempower the global agenda. This is my latest effort. I've created an online presence for our local group called Ozark Neighbors Exchange, O-N-E or one, on bigtent.com to help promote the group and improve its effectiveness. We currently have 20 members and I will be conducting February's meeting. Again, this was a few months ago. Our projects include procuring a sorghum mill, how to produce and utilize biochar for soil rejuvenation, a vermiculture project, one's plan for a food co-op, and the One Congress uh, coming this spring, which is a one-day seminar on a wide variety of topics open to the public. Again, that's probably come and gone by now, but I will throw in the link to BigTent.com so you can go and check out the, uh, the, the One Network and what they're doing there. Again, that's the type of thing that I think is awesome. Again, communities coming together to find communities' answers to these problems and getting off of the the multinational corporate uh, conglomerate supermarket uh, treadmill that we're all on, or many of us are on, and trying to find community-based solutions to this that will be the solutions that see us through whatever type of collapse may or may not be coming. So again, my hat's off to people like that that are doing that. And I had about four or five positive uh, solution-based stories that I was going to share with you in this QFC, but we're already out of time. So I'll leave it there. My apologies to the people I said I was going to include uh, their story, and I haven't. But uh, suffice it to say, there are other people that are similarly taking matters into their own hands and looking for community-based and other ways that they can get involved, um, getting around the system, creating a new system, creating a different alternative infrastructure. And I think that's what it's about at the end of the day. Again, hundreds of questions that came in. This is only a smattering of them, and we've already gone way over time. So thank you for your patience, um, and thank you for your patience over all this long haul, getting the Federal Reserve documentary ready to go. And hopefully this time next week, it will be Federal Reserve documentary time, and then it will be Monday podcast time. So um, so I'm looking forward to returning to the regular podcast schedule. Thank you all for listening. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, asking you to tune again, tune in again next time, and take care.